Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book, his book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it. Print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It also contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one, where people have been stepped through that worksheet process. And if you choose to listen to those, often repeatedly, they can serve as a powerful tutorial for you to help you get the most possible positive benefit from these tools in the shortest period of time. And we greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that. We hope people do all of that soon and often. 
primarily because it's been our experience that that tends to improve the quality of people's lives as they apply these tools actively in their life. And secondarily, because it also tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by calling 563-999-3581 and pressing 1 on your phone, which will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. And as time allows, I'll turn on your microphone and announce you by your area code. And we appreciate whenever any whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's far easier to do when we know how this stuff is landing for you, what we're talking about, the topics we choose, the worksheets that we do, and if you can let us know how that's working for you, it'll be greatly appreciated. I should also mention that uh, there is the website at mindshiftersacademy.org. And that website has some best of audio files from this show. It has some educational materials that um, include a process for grief and loss, include a, a short mental version of the reality management worksheet, and um, some other audio resources that people have asked for over the years that they find useful. So also on that website is all the information you would need to be able to join us on our Tuesday or Thursday support groups, which happen from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. And just another resource that we maintain to try and be a service. We had our support group last night. We had five people plus me. And we had lots of discussion about this, I'll call it highly challenging supposition or observation from a lot of deep spiritual traditions. And that particular observation is that all events are neutral. And so we had a specific request to try and discuss that in a way that might make sense for people because a number of people in the group were having um, real difficulty seeing the truth of that statement, that all events are neutral. Um, Of course, that observation is... Uh, of primary significance in this work because if all events were not neutral, then it wouldn't make any sense for me to do a reality management worksheet about the emotions I'm creating in response to these events. If the events were themselves good or bad and therefore caused these positive or negative, these pleasant or unpleasant emotions within me, then there wouldn't be any purpose to a worksheet process which is focused on changing what's going on inside of me in an effort to change the emotional states I'm experiencing. So we were talking about how this is 
nearly universal spiritual truth in the deep spirituality traditions and the deep religions, the, the core religions, it's even woven into the biblical, and I believe it's intended to be a metaphorical story of the um, the choice to eat from eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And many teachings, many scholars believe and and understand that when stories like this were circulated, they were never believed to be literal. They were understood to be parable, a metaphor, a story with many layers of meaning. And um, so this, you know, for those that may or may not know, there's the story in the Bible that Adam and Eve, the first people, were um, living in total bliss. They were living in the Garden of Eden. They were living in this perfect state. And they had no shame. They were naked. They were in bliss. They were in perfect harmony with the environment and the animals around them, etc. And then one day, as the story goes, a snake, well, and, and the, the, the story says that the creator put them there and said, you know, you rule all of this stuff. You have access to everything except don't eat from this one tree. And you can do anything else, you can eat anything else, any other fruit, any other berry, any other nut or root, but don't eat from this tree. And they were happy and were living happily ever after until one day um, the devil, uh, disguised as a snake, talked to the woman and said, hey, you know what, um, this Eating from this tree is going to give you the knowledge, the same kind of knowledge and power that your creator has, and your creator doesn't want you to eat it because your creator wants you to be stuck underneath him or it. And as the story goes, eventually the serpent was able to convince the woman to eat from that tree tree, eat the fruit, and then get the woman to um, convince the man to do the same, and thereby sinning against their creator, and as a punishment, they were thrown out of this perfect Garden of Eden, and, and all of a sudden they felt shame, even though they'd never felt shame before, and they didn't have any clothes on, and they thought, oh, oh we're naked, and that's bad, and we need to cover up, and that's the story. Well, the great teachers and philosophers who study at an academic level many, many layers through this work say, you know what, it's never, it was never intended to be a literal story about two people in a perfect garden. It was intended to be the metaphorical story about when we live life without judging this is good, that is bad, 
when we live in the realization that all events are neutral unless we label them one thing or another, as we just have great appreciation for the gift of life and the flow of life in all creation, we're, we're far more likely to be living in a happy state or a bliss state. And as soon as we start thinking, I know better than the flow of life, and this is bad, and that is good, and this should be happening, and that shouldn't be happening, we basically throw ourselves out of the garden. We basically initiate all the psychological suffering that we experience. And that story was part of the discussion we had as we are talking about how can you make any sense of a teaching that says all events are neutral and then here's a car accident where this entire young family is wiped out or here is a sexual predator who's you know sexually abusing children or raping women or whatever or here's a a despot who's ruling a country who's got you know 80 or 90 percent of the country living in poverty and fear and then um decides to take his army and go and invade a neighboring country and create more pain and suffering. How can you observe those actualities of life and say all events are neutral? And of course, people can't. Most people have been trained to think they know what's right and they know what's wrong they either have a priest or a guru or a religion that's telling them what to think about what to accept and what to reject and and so it's quite the conundrum for people who get on a deep spiritual path and they're trying to reconcile that there are some things that occur in life that they really don't like they would really prefer were not happening and yet they keep happening And how do they reconcile that with the teaching, the deep spiritual teaching that says all events are neutral? So one way to think about it is that if I step outside of judge, out of that role, and just say, you know what, the truth of the matter is there's so little about life and my existence on this planet that I actually know for absolutely certain. There's so little that I truly know that judging this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong is not a productive endeavor for me. It has me constantly in stress and tension. And furthermore, If I'm in that stress and tension and I blame it on the outside event and I don't get to recognize, I don't get to observe and study for myself how it's the interpretations that I've chosen for that event and the mind energy that I'm pouring into those specific thought patterns, that it's that that's actually creating my emotions, not the existence of the outside event. If I never come to that observation, then I stay stuck believing that I'm a victim and that my emotional ups and downs in life have nothing to do with my internal thought process or my interpretations of life. 
they have only to do with the outside events which seem um, and some people would say random and negative and violent and but if I can start to observe that even when very intensely difficult things happen, things that require me to make financial or physical or mental emotional adjustments that I wasn't planning on on making in order to survive, in order to cope, in order to understand, in order to move forward in life after a big loss, even when those things happen, the dynamic that generates the emotions that I experience is internal to me and it is accessible and I can learn to make it voluntary. It might be so well practiced in its negativity that it seems to be an involuntary thing. And yet I can learn how to access that process and exercise my free will and choose differently every time I choose a set of thoughts that leads me to experience a negative emotion. And once I learn that process and I start to apply the observation that all events are neutral, meaning they don't create my emotional response, that my emotional response is created by the interpretation that I choose and place on my experience of these outside events. Once I start to observe that directly, now I can shift my attention to the thought processes I'm using to create a sense of meaning or interpretation and thereby create my emotions. And then I'm just a step away from being able to change that process within myself so that my experience is more tolerable and perhaps even more pleasant regardless of the outside event. And that doesn't really seem possible and logical and and viable when people first hear about it. And yet with practice, with the observation of how things actually work, with people being willing to change their interpretation and move into questioning rather than knowing and asking to be taught in the moment, most people I've worked with find it is a dramatic shift and it opens up a world of possibilities for more loving, gratitude-based, compassionate living of life. And it's certainly more empowering than believing that I am a victim and, and I'm, I'm buffeted around like a dried-up leaf in the wind and my emotions are determined by these random external events with no option for me to change my emotional state and or initiate behaviors that come from a place of calm and centered you know mental emotional experience because we know and we've talked about this rather extensively that when we make 
a choice. When we think or speak or act from the space where we're in anger or fear or sadness, we dramatically increase the probability that we will not like the results we get. When we ask people, um, think of the things you've done in your life in the past that you now regret doing, and then pick a few of them and then think, what was the mental emotional state you were in when you decided to do that? And invariably the answer is some form of hostility or fear or resentment or bitterness or hurt or confusion. And the more we observe it, the more we think, the more we can see from direct experience in life that the more I act from anger and fear, the more likely I am to regret the consequences of the choices I make at that time. So if I want to increase the probability that I'll be happy with the consequences that I create from my choices and my experience of life, I want to notice the earliest warning signs of a negative emotional state and step into as close to 100% responsibility for that emotional state as I possibly can and start asking myself to observe how is it that I'm actually creating this emotional state and how fascinating it is that my mind wants me to believe that the world around me or the people around me are causing that emotional state. And the more I do this, the more I practice it, the more I build momentum for it, the more I experience the liberation that comes from being empowered by being able to change my emotional state regardless of the outside circumstances. And that's why we teach this work. That's why we teach the Reality Management Worksheet. That's why we have this support group on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we have these Mind Shifter radio shows five days a week, simply and very directly to help people learn this process of observing what's the truth of what causes your emotions. What access do you have to the factors that are creating your emotions so that whenever you have an experience that you don't prefer, you can choose again. And as bizarre as it seems for most people, one of the most important things to do is give up the, the trained, the patterned, the practiced um, habit of judging this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. Just give it up because it doesn't lead us to anything positive. It leads us, it literally initiates the vast majority of psychological and emotional suffering that we do. It is the story, metaphorically speaking, of how we as people threw ourselves out of the Garden of Eden, the bliss state, and initiated judgment and anger and contraction and fear and rather than just staying in the present moment 
and going with the flow of life and observing directly and asking in each moment, what's mine to do with this? How can I take this situation, which I clearly don't prefer. There are people that go through physical disease states and states of poverty and loss of loved ones. and We all go through those things. And yet, in each moment, when those things arise, if I jump into judging it as bad or wrong and saying it shouldn't be happening and it shouldn't happen to me or it shouldn't happen to somebody that I love and he or she or she is such a loving person, and if I initiate that thought pattern and pour my mind energy into it, I exponentially magnify the discomfort and suffering I will experience. It's adding, the old adage, adding insult to injury. It's adding mental, emotional suffering to the actual discomfort or pain. So that's my offering for today based on the discussion in the group last night. Our call in number is 563-999-3581. How is this landing for you? Have you ever struggled with the teaching that says all events are neutral? Have you ever had some events occur in your life that if somebody comes along during that period of time when you're experiencing it and they say all events are neutral, you want to just pop them in the face? because nothing about your experience of your current life events was neutral at that time. If so, give us a call, 563-999-3581, and offer your thoughts. Maybe you want to refute this observation. Maybe you've got a personal experience where you spent a lot of years in the suffering and then you chose to try some tools like this or observations. Area code 314. Is this Doug? Yes, it is. Good morning, Dr. Tim. Good morning. Welcome. I, I, whenever you talk about this principle, I, I struggle with it some but but this time it occurred to me that maybe a simple way to look at it that seems to work for me is to simply substitute for judgment in other words just stay neutral about it don't judge anything instead instead whatever happens i'm just hearing you very simply say ask what is for me to do here and then do it because because one of the objections I run into on the other side of things trying to say, well, everything's neutral, I can't judge anything, is that I start wondering about assessment and I start wondering about, well, why take any action? And I think I've mentioned this before. But so I'm just saying, does that sound on the mark to just say, well, instead of judging whatever's going on, the synopsis of what you're saying is just say what is mine to do here and listen for guidance and do it and stay neutral other than that. Is that? Yes, that is, that, that is what is recommended as one of the primary ways to accept the truth of life. And as Krishnamurti would say, be living in direct observation. 
not be living from your pre-programmed thoughts about how it should be, how the world should be, how the world should treat you, how you should treat the world, but be in the moment in direct observation and let the truth of life in that moment act on you. He would give examples like if you're walking down the street and you're awake and aware of your environment and there's an open manhole, you know, 10 or 15 feet in front of you and you're walking down the sidewalk, the truth of that acts on you. You see it. You don't have to ask yourself, should I step in this? You know, have these people all been lying to me all these years when they talk about how it's dangerous to step into an open manhole? I've never done it before, but it doesn't look that deep. And I wonder, maybe they're trying to, hey, it's like the tree of the fruit of good and evil, right? Maybe if I do this, I'll get a benefit. And maybe all of these warnings against that are, you know, trying to keep me from a bigger reward. You don't have any of that conversation in your head. You see the hole in the pavement, the truth of that acts on you, and you walk around it. That's the idea of living in direct observation, letting the truth of life act on you. You don't start a whole debate in your head about, this is ridiculous, I can't believe they left this here, who's responsible for this, we should sue the city for leaving an open manhole. You don't get into that. (laughs) You pay attention to your life in the moment, and maybe the truth of it speaks to you, and you see that there's no warning placard up or and there's somebody else who's walking and not looking, and so you go and you help them by steering them away from it. You just act. There's action in the moment. So many of us, if not everyone, every person who's ever lived, has had events happen that were that resulted in physical pain, that resulted in you know, the goals they had for them, their life or their family or their career being dashed or changed dramatically. And rather than getting stuck there and saying, I know better than the flow of life in this moment. I know this shouldn't be happening. And the flow of life is saying, this is what's happening. Rather than arguing against the flow of life, if I can learn, train myself to be in the moment, And as soon as I feel the upset or the tension within me that comes from resisting the flow of life, if I start breathing and softening and saying, okay, what's really going on here and what's mine to do here? Kinds of phrases and questions that I throw to myself are things like, how can I be a blessing to myself and others in this moment? How is this going to work out better than I ever could have planned, better than what my plans were for the day? How might I be introduced to somebody in this in this moment that I never would have met otherwise who will be a blessing in my life? I just start living in those active questions and being in the direct observation mode and trusting that whatever happens from there will be fine, will probably be even better than I could have planned. So I don't refuse to act when the the, the life circumstances in front of me 
create a, a natural impulse to act to protect myself or somebody else, action just flows. And there isn't all of this thought about it and judgment about it and evaluation about it. It's just this living in the flow of life, in the, in the now moment. And like the Way of Mastery said, when we live like that, oddly enough, most people think that the teaching is saying, just don't do anything. Just let everything be just the way it is. And then we turn into couch potatoes. But the actuality for most people who've stepped into this observation and practice is they end up being far more active in their lives than ever before. Because the truth of life calls them to do more and be more. It tends to end procrastination for a lot of people. It tends to help people spend a lot less time in the negative emotions. Most of the ones that human beings spend their time in are negative self-judgment, negative self-talk. So we're, we're just recommending a very simple practice for you to do and see, do you like it or not? You know, we had somebody on the call, this has happened several times, but not long ago, they said, so I think that you're just asking me to blindly believe this and that. And I love that observation because it's the opposite. We're asking people to question every belief and learn to live in the question each new present moment. And let the truth of life guide you. Now, I'm, I'm using the phrase here, truth of life. Some people prefer to, to say Holy Spirit or God or my guides or, you know, it doesn't really matter what you call it. It just means when I'm not stuck in my head thinking about life, I'm just in the moment interacting with life, it's an entirely different experience. That's excellent. Thank you. It, it seems to me like um, I was going to ask you, what do you mean by the truth of life acts on me? And then you answered the question. You just answered it, um, and it's a phrase I got. It's a phrase I got from Krishnamurti. So I'm just making the best sense of it I can from this other spiritual teacher. <clears throat> right. Uh, okay, that's helpful to know where it came from. It, it, it almost seems to me that that th- this practice invites invites a perception or the possibility of a perception that everything that's happening there's nothing to resist I mean there's action to take uh, it could turn out to be a resistance I guess in a sense but an acting in opposition to something that's happening if that's the truth of life dictates to you but, but it's it seems like there's an underlying fundamental supposition that goes along with it that everything is 
instead of seeing so many things as wrong, you just see it as a neutral it's positive or it, almost it, like... Well, no, it, it yeah. doesn't even have to be positive. It's just there. It's just right? there. This is, okay. this is not eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good or eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of evil. It's eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the idea of judging, labeling. In itself, there's, I'm pulling myself out of the flow of life. You know, there's this great story about these two ancient teachers that were great meditators and they're from the either Hindu or the Buddhist tradition and they're just, you know, they're as old as dirt and they're sitting on a bench one day out in a park and they're just sitting there quietly and all of a sudden one of them bursts into laughter, loud, raucous laughter. So that people walking by stop and look at him like, what just happened? And he turns to his friend and he points to the energy experience in front of him and he says, they call that a tree. And the other friend starts to uproarious laughter. As though this experience of energy, the creative force expressing in the material world with you know the the roots and the bark and the insects that live on it and the branches and the leaves and the birds that make their home in it and we can just define it we can just label it as tree and now we know what it is oh that's a tree and we're dismissive right that's that's what we do every time we label something and or judge it as good or bad rather than just, okay, this is what's happening. What's mine to do here? And if I have started with this observation that I am also the creative energy expressing in form, that I'm a spark of this one creative mind, that I don't even know what my origins were, but I understand from my experience that I highly prefer my energetic experience when I'm focused on love and gratitude and helping others. And if I've, if I've got that as my basic observation, then as I interact with life and I resist the temptation from my culture and the training from my culture to label it as good or bad, it just opens up a world of possibilities for me to start interacting with that flow of creative energy differently without all of the resistance, without all of the tension, without all of the the emotions that most of us would label negative. Right? It's like the story of the farmer in the mountainous town and um, his wife had died and several of his children had died and he just had the one son. And he had four or five horses to 
try to work the fields in this mountainous area, and, and that was it. And that's how he was surviving. Thank goodness he had his son and these few horses. And the weirdest thing about this farmer was that no matter what happened, people would say, oh, that's good, or oh, that's bad. And he would say, well, I don't know, good, well, maybe bad, we'll see what happens. Didn't matter what happened, that was what this guy was known for and drove his neighbors crazy. One morning, they wake up and the corral is empty. The wood had rotted or some bug had eaten thing and it you know, got bumped by a horse and the gate was open and the horse is left in the middle of the night. The neighbor comes over and says, oh my God, this is tragic. I, I can't believe it. You've had such a hard life and now this. You're never going to be able to farm this, this land without your horses and farmer says, I don't know, maybe good, maybe bad, we'll see. Of course, the neighbor's fed up with him by this point and leaves in a huff. A couple days later, they're out there doing their chores, and their horses return leading a small herd of wild mustangs into the corral. And now they've got three times as many horses. And his son runs over and closes the gate. And now, based on the economic flow in that area, now they've gone from <laughs> poverty to wealthy, right? And the neighbor comes over and goes, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing ever. What a great piece of luck. You're so lucky. The farmer says, well, I don't know. Maybe good, maybe bad. We'll see. A few days later, his son is out there working with the, the new wild Mustangs trying to break one of them so it can put a harness on him and, and the Mustang throws him off and he badly breaks his leg in three places. The neighbor comes over. Oh my God. If it wasn't for bad luck, you'd have no luck at all. This is horrible. The farmer says, I don't know. Maybe good. Maybe bad. We'll see. How could you say that? Your son is hurting. You, now you can't. There's no way he'll work the farm with all you. Blah, blah, blah. The farmer was unfazed. A week later, the neighboring kingdom decides, I'm going to go out and start an army and go and fight for the next kingdom and take over some extra land. And the king's men come through and sweep up every able-bodied young man to go into the army. And, of course, his son can't go because he's got a broken leg. And the neighbor comes to him and says, oh, my God, you're so lucky that your son's leg was broken. He didn't have to go off to war. I don't know, maybe good, maybe bad, we'll see. <laughs> now, most of us can't even imagine living life in that flow, resisting the urge and the training, the conditioning of the culture to judge. But you might consider it a thought experiment, right? You might consider it a, a life experiment to try and just see. Maybe you try it for a month or two and just see. Do you prefer living in that state of allowance, surrender, refusal to judge, questioning, asking, looking for the blessing from everything that happens, or do you prefer living in judgment? That's all we're suggesting. Try it. Put it to use in your life. See if you like it or not. See if it works the way the great teachings say. Yeah, that's that's great. That's a good uh, invitation, and 
it's um, I feel like somehow this is helping me to to understand that possibility a little better. So I'm grateful for that. <laughs> it's very intriguing. Uh, I want to say it's good, and then I think, well, no, let's just say okay, <laughs> that, that happened. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Or as, as Mr. Spock would say, fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. fascinating. It is fascinating. Oh, there's five Klingon okay. warships all pointing their guns at us right now and no way out. Fascinating. And we didn't even see them coming? How did our long-range sensors not pick that up? Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That would be... <laughs> That would, that's what it would be like uh, to just live in the observation and say, wow, that's not what I was expecting. I wonder how this will work out, rather than saying right. this and, is bad or wrong. That would be hard in that situation to do. And But still, you would then just have to take some action, right? There just have to be, uh, how did you phrase that? The, the force of life in you would say, all right, let, well, let, let's let do this, truth, that, or the other. Though, let, if I'm living with my eyes open in direct observation, continually asking to be shown what's mine to do here, then I see the truth of life more more clearly than if I'm judging this is right and this is wrong and this is bad and this is good. I see the truth of it. I have less distorted perception and the truth of life acts on me and actions flow out of me that are in accordance with whatever I can muster and add to the flow of life that's, you know, in alignment with the highest and best for me and everybody around me. But it's not something I can usually think of with my intellectual mind because life is so much more complicated than anything my intellectual mind can comprehend. Good, yes. So we have another hand up. Are you willing to stay on the line and listen to comments from another person, or do you need to go? No, I can stay. Sure. 610, is this Susan? It is. I'm in Ohio between fours of two colleges, and I could come on the radio show. This is very cool, and, but I love the And talk. you put your hand up. What? And you put you your did? hand up. I did. Yeah. Um, you know, this business, this book that Sundberg, in his book, he gives another angle on is it good or is it bad. Doug, I don't want to know if you want to hear this, but he's saying that basically we to live a human life and and we we get the challenges in order to show ourselves the opposite of the light that we're coming from and we'll experience even more light when we go back. And all of these experiences, no matter how seemingly terrible or not terrible, are on, not, we don't know it now, but we asked for this and these are going to help us find our way back to our true being which is connected to everyone in, and in, in the light and not our true non-physical life. So that's very poorly presented because I don't have um, the passage. I did bring the book with me, but I don't have the very space. So it, 
gives a sense of that whatever it is, good or bad, or we'll see, has an ultimate purpose that is going to bear tremendous fruit. Did you say it was? And it, it seems to me like even even maybe it's the languaging you're using, but you're you're suggesting good or bad within the speaking of it. So, so well, it, so, um, he says we experience it as very bad if it's very painful. He said we're going to have some terribly painful experiences, but um, these have a purpose. In other words, these bad things are are really good. It's sort of like what's happening to to the farm are all collapsed together. The book is one that Tim Hayes has been um, quoting from and reading from for the past few weeks called A Walk in the Physical. And the author is Christian Sundberg, S-U-N-D-B-E-R-G. And uh, we could go into who this Christian Sundberg is, but he's brilliant and he's a very unusual soul. Okay. And Tim Hayes might want to say more about that. I don't know. Well, it it's, you know, my conscious logical mind wants to jump in and say, oh, they're judging it as right or wrong, good or bad. Again, as um, Christian and, and other people who talk about near-death experiences and having had an experience where they their mind got expanded because they weren't constrained to the body and it goes beyond words each new heartbeat there's just no way to talk about this there's both an experience of linear time and no linearity in time and so you know yes you're going to have a conflict if you start to talk about that in our language and say well no wait they're using the word good or the word bad and yet they're they're pointing at an experience where these deep spiritual truths contain their opposites i remember one time susan bingham was on the call and she asked a question and i had just listened to some world-class physicist be interviewed by Krista Tippett, and he was saying, one of the things about any deep truth is that one of the factors, one of the features of anything that's deeply true is that its opposite is also true. Now, let that expand your mind a little bit. How the heck can that happen in the physical world with just linear logic it can't right because we've been trained to condition there's right there's wrong there's good there's bad there's light there's dark etc but he gave us an example he said for years people had their their um, scientific instruments and they evaluated whether or not light was a wave or a particle and they would have these chest thumping arguments for one side or the other saying light is a wave no light is a particle until eventually they the the measuring devices reached a level of sophistication where they could definitively prove that in certain situations 
light functions as a wave, and in other situations it functions as a particle. And so both are true. So in the realm of physics, there are deep truths that contain their opposite, that their opposite is also true. This also happens at a philosophical level. This can also happen at the spiritual level. So I would just encourage you not to get too wrapped up in the words and step into a practice that can help you demonstrate for yourself what do you prefer. Do you prefer living in judgment or do you prefer living in open, active questioning, not aggressive questioning, just wide open in each moment? Oh, I wonder how this is going to work out. Right, very good. Sure. That's... It, if if you want to win an argument, you need to make sure that it's either this or that, and that your words are going to put you in, in on top. But that's one of the reasons it's so useful in the reality management worksheet and in the Diedrich Wolzak work to say, I cancel my need to be right, and I just choose again, and I ask to be shown something else. And I'm not interested in being right. I'm interested in being able to see life more accurately and participate in the flow in a way that leads to results I prefer. That's all. And sometimes that requires me understanding I don't really know what anything is and is for. Very good. Thank you. Yes. And if you're like most of us, that's going to take quite a bit of practice. We were listening last night oh, yeah. to one of the Abraham talks, and Abraham was asking the person in the hot seat a series of questions, trying to get them kind of, you know, like teaching from the Socratic method, just ask one question after another and let people reach their own conclusions. But one of the questions that Abraham asked was, so if there's a new skill that you'd like to develop, better to just practice once or twice a month if you think about it or to practice it every day? We have been so conditioned to think right, wrong, good, bad, judge this, judge that. That's the only way to make progress. We better fight for what's right. We better fight for what we believe in. We better prove we're right and the other person's wrong. We have such a strong conditioning for that that if we want to try something else, we're really going to have to work at it and practice breaking that habit of thought. Because it's got so much momentum, it will be there instantaneously, moment to moment, without us realizing it. So if we want to practice yeah. this, we're going to have to be diligent about it. We're going to have to be vigilant. And then evaluate after we've had some success at being able to maintain that 
different pattern of thought, evaluate, do I like it or not? Or do I want to go back to judging? Well, it, it certainly feels like a stress buster to me, like a way <laughs> to ease away stress, a less stressful way to look at life. Well, I will say that I have experienced it as that. It, it has definitely reduced my stress level, and it's definitely helped me reduce the amount of time I spend experiencing what I would call the negative emotions, the tight, the tense, yeah. the angry, the hurt, the confused emotions. That seems valuable. It certainly has been for me, pushing whatever it is, 19 or 20 years now of actively thinking about that day in and day out, catching the earliest warning signs within me, within my energy system and within my body of tightness or tension or upset, and then taking that calming breath, turning the focus inside and starting to just live in those questions, as Rilke would call us to, learning to live in the question without demanding an answer, living in the questioning state, has produced tremendously positive results for me. Thank so you for I realize we are down to our last yeah. minute and a half or so, so I thank you for the wow. call, Doug, okay. and your comments, you. Susan. I will mute you so you can listen to the second half. Blessings to both of you. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I will turn on the microphone for and welcome Jeannie Rice. Dr. Kim, appreciate it. Am I here? You're very welcome. Yep, you're here. You're welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of My Shifters Radio. And today is Wednesday, March the 22nd, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that puts you in the queue to talk to us. We'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And uh, Michael will get dialed in here in just a moment. And uh, I was just looking. We have a book club tomorrow uh, on the 23rd. And I need to check with Yinka. I don't think that they change time until this coming Sunday. So be four hours difference instead of five hours difference and so that would be let's say instead of the website says that it is at 3.30 our time so that would actually be 4.30 our time and then they'll change time zone again and then it'll go back to being for five hours difference so confusion but we'll get through that and uh 
I'm still a little bit scattered. <laughs> so, there's just been so much going on, and we actually have a trip scheduled. We're leaving in the morning and uh, meeting some of Michael's family up in uh, New York, and Michael, Jay, and Jamie and the baby are flying in, and Ryan and Gabby and Aria are flying up. So it'll be uh, quite a bit of family gathered together for a week. We should be, I'll have to play a show while we're traveling uh, tomorrow and possibly even Friday. It depends on when we get in there. But then we'll be live next week calling from New York. Um, Michael's coming up the steps and getting dialed in, so he'll be with us here in just a minute. And the, <clears throat> I don't think I've made any more changes on the website this week. It's been a little bit... Um, off, off kilter for us. <laughs> my, if, for those who may not know, my father passed away on Saturday evening. And so just trying to get things settled, you know, we're, we're not doing a memorial service until we get back and some of the other family gets back from a trip. So we're doing that on the 5th of April. But we were already able to do our family time and viewing and everything on Sunday. But it's just a matter of trying to get things together, notify insurance companies and stop checks and just lots of things. So my mind's kind of in about 50 different directions, so I apologize <laughs> for not being quite here. Um, I did have a breath session Saturday morning before we went to visit Dad, and I kind of t- tapped into his energy and told him, you know, he had struggled long enough and, and uh, it was time to let go. And then when we finished the still point breathing class and we went over to the hospital and we were there about 30 40 minutes and he passed away so we were able to be there with him and see that transition and so now it's just trying to balance out and find a new norm somewhere (laughs) so continued prayers are appreciated and I don't believe Michael's dialed in yet let me go see if he's having technical difficulties so if you have a question or a comment, press 1. It puts a hand up. And then we know that you want to talk to us. Hmm. Uh, Susan, 610, you're on the air. Hi. Hello, just a greeting. I'm going to leave the show um, in a little while because I'm in Ohio doing a college oh. tour with a grandson, but there's a little hiatus in the middle so I came into my hotel room and dialed you in and it's great to hear from you oh. your voice but any go easy on yourself holy mackerel <laughs> yeah, you've been okay. through the ringer oh man so I just wanted to commiserate and Thank wish you. you well I appreciate um, that it's uh, <sighs> it's actually been pretty smooth I have times you know some ups and downs but yeah, I know. What shifts is way below the surface. You just feel the seismic adjustments. Something yep. has changed. It's so deep. Um, I'm glad Tell us about it. The... <laughs> no, she's talking about me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I felt that with my mother, but... I'm sure you feel it with your dad. And I felt it with my dad, too. And I did get that feeling that he was okay. Um, 
And then he, he lived on a canal in Florida, and one day um, a heron came up and came right up to to us. And I, I said, Daddy, is that you? I mean, it was just so strange. <laughs> he, was, he loved the herons, and we've right. never seen one come so close. Little things like that, but you don't know what they really mean. It just feels as if there's a little hole in the ozone, and suddenly you're hitched with something much bigger. Right. But anyway, you must be feeling that sort of thing a lot right yeah, now. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of weird not calling, you know, because usually what I would do was call either the assisted living or the hospital in the morning and check on him, see how his night went, and then we would go visit later. And uh, yeah. so it just is weird not making that phone call to somebody, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, and, carry on. Yeah, I like it. And it's pretty awesome that this is her third night of seven and a half hours of sleep. Wow, that and for the first time in first time in what five years, maybe longer. It's it's been a while. I actually got a few long nights when you were up in Kansas City because I would just go to bed so early. And yeah. I've, I have found that that is a, row, a clue pretty, for me, about. right? <laughs> I found that's a clue for me to go to bed earlier because even with the wake up time and you know during the night and all of that, if I go to bed earlier, because my alarm goes off, my internal alarm goes off between seven and seven thirty every morning. So if I don't go to bed till eleven, it cuts my time shorter. Anyway, adjustments all the way around. Holding the space. So, Miss Susan, how are all those young men around you doing? <laughs> well, I'm with Michael one in in. The... Sorry. I was putting, going to start to list them, Michael and. Oh, that young. How, man. how is everybody? Yeah, doing? It, very interesting with that Michael. Um, Tim and I haven't wanted to tell him to, to leave. We were just trusting that the universe would show us what to do. And Social Security issues not only a regular check, but evidently there's something called SSI. Maybe you know about it, Social Security Insurance, which is an additional payment to people who are homeless. That's my understanding. And he was getting $300 a month in addition to his social security, his regular social security, he was living on the combination of the two of those. A woman called him up and said, I find that you've been living for six months with this at the same address. So you're, I'm going to cut your check. You can't have that check anymore. Well, of course, poor Michael went into a total tailspin and he couldn't even talk. His hands were shaking, panicked. And he, he got off the phone and said, please call this woman named Mrs. Wilson. Well, Mrs. Wilson wanted to know what our expenses were and how much our mortgage was if we had one, which we don't, how much our monthly payments for this, that, and the other were. And then she said, how much, is, how much work is he doing? How is he earning his stay there? And I said, well, he fills the bird feeders and he, he does some vacuuming for us once a week. And she said, that's not enough. I'm cutting his check. And I said, look. This man is homeless. It was the dead of winter. We plugged him into our house, but he is still homeless. This is not his home. He's just borrowing some space to survive. You cannot cut his check. This will 
just make things worse. And this is what's wrong with our country right now. And she said, all right, then I will say that he has done $500 worth of work per month for you, and I won't cut his check. (laughs) That was the end of that. But he knows Mm. that he can't stay with us. I don't know how long he'll be able to get away with staying with us, but it has kind of bitten his ankles a bit. And I think he's probably Mm. getting his gears in gear to find some sort of situation. But it is it's heartbreaking to see because this man needs I hear support. How do you give him support? He can't live up here. He'll freeze to death. Um, right. Anyway, this is, I've learned so much from him and it's ongoing, but one thing he's forced me to take a look at is, it's very hard for some people and they need a lot of help and they're not bad because they need that. Right. Well, I'm, you know, it it ties in. I'm actually doing some writing. I don't know if you got our newsletter a week or so ago on the Avison and I've been, since, since I wrote that, I've been doing just a whole other level of research and recognizing the importance of getting out of the sympathetic dominant state. In fact, I start the article out saying the most dangerous place in the world to live is in a mind-body nervous system that's fueled by fear and or hostility. And realizing, realizing, we've been doing more work. You've seen that video that I did for the Avison Medical, uh, their medical uh, doctors and such, on the sympathetic parasympathetic. And realizing, especially in a case like Michael, that in that fear, flight, fright, freeze, fawning mode, the blood flow is cut to higher centers of the brain. Yeah. And people go into survival. And if they never get out of that survival mode, you know, what for the average person would be relatively easy to figure out, that part of the brain isn't functioning. It just isn't there. Let alone the fact that everything to do with the ability to physiologically thrive has this blood flow shut down. Yeah. In order to move the blood flow, in order to move the energy to survival, you know, the large muscles, arms, legs, the lungs to get more oxygen in so that one can fight or run successfully. And when one lives in that state chronically, I mean, everything to do with thriving is shut down. And, and when that happens chronically, when that happens over an extended period of time, I'm just realizing this whole piece of the puzzle that takes it to a new level. You know, in the system of medicine I'm trained in, the whole foundation of disease is congestion. And when you realize that in that survival mode, in that sympathetic dominance mode, blood flow is cut to everything to do with thriving, including the brain, and then when that happens chronically, of course, what happens when the flow in the stream is cut off? 
Well, organisms start to build. Gunk starts to accumulate. Congestion goes to a whole deeper level. So, you know, as I was trained in medicine, it was congestion that's the key you've got to deal with. But now I'm realizing that it's what cuts the flow that creates the congestion. And it's that fear-based mind. That's the most dangerous place anybody could possibly live. And then, of course, next to that is a fear or hostility-based home a fear or hospitality-based workplace, and then come, in terms of dangerous places, then come hospitals, then come drug stores, and then come grocery stores. And until people realize that, nobody's returning to health. Everybody's struggling. Like, you know, we spend literally 10 times as much on what's called healthcare in America, and there's almost, there's virtually no healthcare in America. It's all disease care. And it's all dealing with, well, we can shut this symptom down. Well, what happens if you have a symptom because there's a lack of blood flow to an organ and you drug that organ so that it doesn't hurt? Well, you just shut it down on a whole other level. And you shut it down and you shut it down and you shut it down. And they call, you know, when you look at a body that has that happening, they call it aging and naturally it dies because it's old. But it isn't. It doesn't have anything to do with old. It's got to do with if you don't get oxygen nutrition to a cell, if you don't get the waste removed, if congestion builds up, the structure can't function. It just can't survive. So that's really hitting me on a whole different level. And, of course, I, I was talking with Jeannie about that this morning. And then when you talk about Michael and realizing, you know, he's a relatively healthy young man, relatively young, sure, he could go out and do all that. But not if his brain isn't functioning. Not if those higher centers aren't functioning, and that's the first place to get restored. If that doesn't happen, the things that are obvious aren't so obvious because those higher functions aren't happening. And then, of course, you follow that up with the fact that where that blood flow is restricted to the brain, now there's congestion. Now we've got a whole other level of brain toxicity happening. So, And it happens in every organ throughout the system. It's like I'm, I'm seeing more and more this is the whole core of disease. And why can't people figure it out? They can't figure it out because our brain is shut off. Mm-hmm. So it's just you know it's 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 just coming clear to me on a whole new level what needs to happen. And until blood flows opened up, now people can go out and, you know, become runners, get the runners high, and what's that? Well, the brain's starting to function. It's getting blood to it. Or they can go and sit in the hot tub, you know, in in um, Sweden, Norway, those countries. You know, the hot tub is part of life. Everybody's in the hot tub every day. Mm-hmm. And that creates an increase in the temperature of the blood, which increases the opening the movement toward parasympathetic operation and higher function. And those people are healthier. People who sit in a bathtub, people who move out of sympathetic dominance into parasympathetic. So, you know, how do we get someone like Michael until he can start to, it's kind of like a, a reverse engineering for success in this case. And that is when I go into fear and hostility and I cut the part of my brain off that can start to understand and do something about it, I, of course, then I'm going to go into more fear and hostility and it's a downward cycle. 
Mm. And that somewhere has to be cut and move in the other direction. And one of the most powerful places I know to cut it is you need to forgive those thought disorders that set the whole structure into fear. And, you know, medically, sympathetic dominance, restriction of blood flow, is considered to be a physical thing. And it's got nothing to do with the physical. It's all about what people are doing with their minds. And if they go into fear, it's a signal to shut down for safety. My grandson's at the door. To be continued, I have to go. Thank you so much. All right, young lady, blessings. (laughs) Enjoy your time with your grandson. Okay, bye-bye. Well, Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? Well, Doug's hands up, but I think he was talking to Dr. Tim. But I'm gonna turn on his microphone and just see if he was complete. Or okay, we, we haven't talked to Doug we for haven't a while. Heard. So. Yeah. Hey, young man. You with us? And Doug maybe walked away oh, from I his phone. Oh, I see that. I, I see that. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Listen, you the mute challenge. challenge. <laughs> I know that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how I haven't you heard doing your voice both? in a while. How uh, you be? Uh, well, that's that's quite a story in itself. But first, let me just just say thank you for sharing all of your Kajini and you both, but her in particular. You know, um, sharing all the grace around your father's transition. That was a a good uh, a good thing to be aware of and to hear that example of. Yeah that grace that went with his, his, his transition. So grace is the right word. That. It was. Thank you. Right. It seems like, so, um, yeah, what you were saying about here is certainly apropos. In fact, I was talking to, to uh, Dr. Tim about, um, his introduction on, basically around the idea of being in a state of non-judgment about everything going on in order not to go into fear and then just to act on the the guidance that you get about what to do in every situation rather than judging it and therefore getting into fear and that was that was somewhat helpful i feel like i have a huge issue with both of those things, you know, judging things and fear, being fearful about so many things in this world that my judgment system says are wacky right now. So, so the uh, question... Yeah. The question that I would offer to ask yourself at this point is the behavior that Dr. Tim was talking about that you're referring to here, is that a power person dynamic in your life? Because if it is, until you address it as a power person dynamic and clean up the power person relationship, it's going to tend to continue. And remember, in the, when, when ultra-stressed and the power person dynamic is operating, then we do what our power person did to us that we hated the most, or that they did to themselves that we hated to watch, whatever that behavior is. 
And so if it ties in and there's a power person dynamic beneath it that needs to be dealt with. Again, remember, the way you tell who your power person is in any situation is whose behavior you do. So are they behaviors that you watch your power person do and took on as this is the strategy for survival? Well, now that's a whole nother, a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother angle on it. I mean, I'm, I was having a little trouble. I think I maybe didn't convey my conversation very well about Dr. Tim there, but, but, but nonetheless, just what you say, I can kind of relate it to the the general theme of being in fear or in judgment, because that's, you know, he, he was simply su- suggesting and talking about how you can live a life. In new chat, all where you where you conclude all events are neutral, and then instead right. of acting out of judgment, you simply act according to the inspiration of the light that's in you in every moment of what what's there for me to do now, and that right. and 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 yet what what you're saying when I look at what you're saying, it's like oh okay yes I do have. Well, I have a, an adoption pattern, I would say, of seeing the world as being in crisis, which my father did. I mean, we would we would take walks all the time in which he would express his concerns about the state of the world and the insanity that he saw everywhere and right. the distress that he felt over it. And I, I, I am certainly experiencing... And that that was his point too. It's the the judgment, you know, it's a constant state of seeing chaos and insanity everywhere and judging it as such, judging judging that okay. that's what I'm seeing everywhere and then being distressed about it. In so a state here's, of fear. There's there there's the number one error to look at. Have have you caught in what you just said? And I'll I'll invite you to go back and re-listen to the show and just listen to this sentence, the couple of sentences you just said. Have you heard the okay. denial in it yet? Can you pinpoint the denial in what you just said? Because as long as there's so. denial, say again. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think I'm okay. understand either. Either I'm not understanding the question, or I'm not seeing it because I. Okay. I mean, I what I recognize is that I'm doing the same pattern, okay, that right. my father did, perfect, and and that I'm awesome. running judgment about everything, right? And that's that. Man, the following words. There's your denial. Take the next words in the sentence that you used. And he's distressed about it, and I'm distressing he was distressed over it. About it. And I'm distressed yeah. about it. Okay. So, so, so remember our definition of denial. When I think outside or of speak, us is, yeah, the cause of what's moving inside of us. So when I think Dad was in distress because of what was happening in the world, when Dad thought Dad was in distress because he thought it was about what was happening in the world, he hid the cause of his distress because he wasn't the least bit distressed about what was happening in the world. He was just distressed and he would put it into through denial, his brain's image of the world. And I'd offer that there's, there's your challenge when you say I'm distressed about it. No, you're not. You're just distressed. You've got a genetic pattern of being distressed 
and you can put it into you know your relationship with your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your spouse or your used to be spouse or your maybe to be spouse or yourself or anybody else anybody who's in distress is in distress because they're in distress not because anything happened in the world and when I let go of that denial then my mind can serve up to me in the presence of love that distressed energy and it's going to dissolve but as long as I remain in denial in order for my mind to show me a picture that tells me that proves to me I'm in distress because of what's happening out there I have to hide the real cause of my distress so I live in a picture world that shows me yep it's about that it's them it's that it's that it's that and it's not it's because there's distress energy in there Pardon me. I just swallowed a little bit of water. Can the wrong I way. add something? Go for it, Jean. It just occurred to me, you know, while you were gone to Kansas City, I did the uh, power person worksheet, the long one that we did it during the intensive. And one of the things that came up was, you know, that um, my ultimate, you know, used to be uh, leaving and that daddy always left. And during the breast session, I was able to that and actually telling it was okay to go. And Give Dad permission they, to leave. Was, wow, yeah. Yeah. So I think that was powerful insight. Yeah. And I suspect that one of the reasons he was holding on was because of the distress energy that you were in that seemed to be about him leaving that was about your distress and the minute you were able to process that and let go of it, and that power person worksheet is awesome at unraveling the mind, then he could let go because you could let go. What did you I, identify as your stress, Jeannie, instead of his leaving? Um, his leaving? Well, see, one of the things, Dad always left and went to the farm. And I, that was his way of dealing with surviving, I guess. And so my ultimate was always leaving. And then when he was sick and I was finally able to say, you could go. Breathing with you, sweetheart. Just be with it. Until just a few days ago. Up until just a few days ago, Jeannie could not talk. And I, I'm thinking back to one of the, I mean, we met 20 years ago, one of the first conversations we had. I don't know if you remember this, Jeannie, but one of the first conversations we had was that you knew that one day your mom and your dad were going to die. And you didn't know how you were going to handle that. Do you remember that conversation? Really early, early when we met? And up until, well, I remember it clearly, and it's something you've mentioned several times over the years, and through the Still Point session on Saturday, when you had that conversation with Dad internally and said it's okay to go, it's the first time I've heard you be able to refer to him leaving his body and not watch you get all tensed up and choked up. 
that you could breathe. And of course, none of us want him, wanted him to leave, but it was for his, his highest good. And as Doug languished, it was full of grace for him to leave. And I think you pinpointed it right there that you told, gave him that permission. It was no longer right. a goal that you had to hold on to that created all that stress. And then I was able to, they were going to bring in the art and try to shock him back. And I was actually able to say no, let him go. Yeah. Breathing with you. And I don't know why I want to read this. I actually put it in the notes for uh, last last week. It might have been earlier this week. And I, I didn't get Please around to reading it. it but it's uh, from The Course in Miracles, Fear of Redemption. And it says, you might wonder why it's so crucial that you look upon your hatred and realize its full extent. You may also think that it would be easy for the Holy Spirit just to show it to you and to dispel it without you needing to raise it to awareness. Yet, there's one more obstacle that you have interposed between yourself and the atonement. We have said that no one would, will countenance fear if he recognize it, and yet, in your disordered state of mind, you do not like it, that it is not your desire to attack, it is, your, it is not your desire to attack that really frightens you. You are not seriously disturbed by your hostility. You keep it hidden because you are more afraid of what it covers. You could... You can look even upon the ego's darkest cornerstone without fear. If you do not believe that without the ego, you would find it within yourself, something you fear even more. You're not really afraid of crucifixion. The real terror is of redemption. Hmm. <laughs> says a mouthful, doesn't it? It's like, you know, holding on and not really wanting to let it go because afraid of what I guess is going to be there if you let it go. And what will be there, as you discovered when you let it go, is serenity and connectedness to being and connectedness to source. And that's where that piece that Dr. Tim was talking about, once I let go of the goals that drive my perception to pain once I stop pretending that my pain is about something outside of me, my disturbance, my distress, my fear, whatever it is, something outside of me, then I can embrace that in love, process through it, and then I'll be alive and I will know at every instant directly without any reference to the past. You know, one of the things, two of the things the Course talks about, and this is something I've been practicing now for, I don't know, going on several months, maybe as much as a year, is one, is being willing to let go of perception. Two, being willing to let go of memory. Because they're both things we created out of the past. And to do that... To trust that what in the ancient teachings they called the mind of Christ, which is literally the mind of love, which we're born and bred in, that we can trust that at every moment. It will always give us better information than our perceptual mind and that our, our memory could ever give us out of the past because the only thing he can give us out of the past is advice from our past generations, and they're all dead. So it really didn't work very well for them. 
But that's the only advisor we've got. You know, the course talks about in order to do anything, you go to an advisor. You either go to the past, perception, and memory, or you trust that literally God's mind is available to you. Love's mind is available to you. Tell you anything and everything you need to know about what's going on inside of you, what's going on outside of you, what's going on in the future, what went on in the past. That mind is there. And I'm talking now just from my personal perspective. That's been a new insight for me in the last year or so. And that I've been working on really learning to trust. Hey, God's mind is better than anything I could ever figure out. But as long as I'm in denial, I think something outside of me caused this to move inside of me. And I never forgive as to that energy, i.e. I never find the goal that drives my mind to use it. Every time that goal is loaded in my mind, my mind will use that dissociated dissociated content and come up screaming so loud that I can't hear what was called the still small voice that is here to guide me through everything and knows, literally knows everything. So I think spotting denial is a real key. Being able to recognize any time the slightest thought comes that has me believe that something in the past in me is being served up because of something going on out there which, of course, is ridiculous. Obviously, it's in the past. It's in me. Something out there can't cause it. Something out there can certainly resonate. It can certainly move it. Can't cause it. Hence, the importance of locating every goal that you hold that could bring up any form of dissociated content or bring any form of dissociated content into activity and working with the forgiveness process to collapse into those parts of the mind from the past that scream so loudly we can't hear that subtle voice that's always there and will flood every cell in our structure literally with active present love whatever's going on does that make sense Doug? Oh man, there's just so much. There's so much in in this conversation, in my opinion, and what you're saying. I, 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 so I, I'm, yeah, just uh, somewhat the the perception of the idea that I'm having. Well, okay, so so mind boggling is coming up in me. You know, I don't want to say I'm mind boggled, but. But, you know, it's like I, I feel I like there's a level of, yeah, like, oh, my gosh, how can I grip all of this? How can I take all of this in and 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 understand it and apply it or, or simply experience it as a way of being? Because, um, okay, so that's, that's one thing that's awakened me. And the oh. other is that, that I'm – go ahead. I'm sorry. You go ahead. How can I figure this out? And remember no. the codependence no. intensive? No. The number one pseudo solution of the non-being mind is if oh, I could just figure this out. And the past can't figure it out. Perception can't do it. No. no. But no, 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 you no. can forgive it. 
you can forgive it. You can apply forgiveness to it, and that will walk you through the other side of it. You don't have to figure it out. I have no, no, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I want to figure it out. I just want to comprehend it and be able to uh, really rock it, really apply it, really experience it. And maybe that is figuring it out, but it feels like it's understanding to me. Uh, Well, I'll, uh, I'll change my language then. The number one solution to non-being mind is if I could just comprehend this. Okay. The mind can't understand anything. The mind, like any more, you know, your computer can spit out all kinds of fabulous information, but it does, does not understand one iota of what it's giving you. It's just spitting out what's in it from the past. That's all your mind can do. That's why I say you can't figure it out. You can't comprehend it. But you can forgive it. When you forgive as there's the breath, when you forgive as to that, that's when the whole structure that raises up that says, oh, no, I've got to have the answer here, or here is the answer. The way that resistance structure is collapsed is by canceling the goals that drive it. So whenever, you know, Oh, I have to figure this out. I have to understand it. No, you don't. All you have to do is remove the untoward energy, and the only thing that's left is you. And you are created of the essential energy of the love of God. Can that fail? It's interesting. Churchianity has come up with, and I forget who the scholar was that said, you know, the biggest trick that Satan ever played was to convince us that he doesn't exist. My offering is the biggest trick that Satan ever played was to convince us that he does exist. And recognizing from the Aramaic, the word Satan means the resistor one who misleads. And you'll notice that every time you turn to your past, which means your generations, for an answer, it will always generate another challenge, another problem, another reason to push it away. And that's why I say, but you can in that instant, every time, collapse it. And remove the barriers that block you functioning out of the truth of your created essence. So rather than grasping it, the solution is in letting it go. Then it's yours because it will come back and teach you. But you can only learn what it will teach you when you're in the place to learn it. When you're in a sensitive period, you know, in Montessori education, it's an interesting system. They don't say, oh, every child at four has to learn the ABCs, and every child at six has to learn to add, multiply, subtract, and divide, and every child at eight has to learn to read this level. They don't do that at all. They have several environments in the classroom, and the job of the teacher is to observe when the child is ready, when they're in a sensitive period for this piece of learning. So the four-year-old 
ready to learn math, gets pushed into the math environment, and learns what the eight-year-old has been struggling with for years to understand and learns it in minutes. To recognize our sensitive periods for spiritual growth, for awakening to who we are. And then, you know, who was it that said, get your bloated nothingness out of the way? Get this whole conversation that always comes up to block it. You know? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I have a, there's a problem with this. Oh, oh, here's another. Well, here's another problem. Yep. And you know how many times you're going to forgive before that mind finally shuts up? <laughs> Whatever the issue is, it'll be 77 times 70 times around that issue. Then once the resistor is collapsed, is defeated, the only thing left is who you are. The only thing left is who we are. Of course, really clearly says it. Teach only love for that is what you are. And use words only to show the error of the world of darkness, of the world of words. And yes, remember the healing crisis, one of the steps in the process of healing is confusion. Because when pure being and pure truth is being poured into the mind, and the mind has other ideas, something that's not so pure in truth or being, and when those two meet in the, in the space of conscious awareness, the energies mix and it's mass confusion. And that's the place to breathe, be patient. You don't have to figure it out. Just let yourself process through it. And, you know, you've heard us talk a thousand times about building the brain cells. The only reason for building the brain cells is so that ultimately you can remove, understand how to remove the interference and the interference comes from a thousand generations of terror and trauma and thinking that there's terror and trauma because of what's happening in the world. And nobody has ever been in any form of terror or trauma about what's happening in the world. The only people who've ever been in terror and trauma are people who have terror and trauma in them. And it's not about the world. It's not about the relationship. It's not about the money. It's not about the business situation. one of the earliest lessons in the course. I'm never upset for the reason I think. Oh, the mind, the ego will come up thousand explanations for the disturbance and the upset. There's only one. Oh, there's disturbance and upset in here. Can I figure it out? No. Can I fix it? No. Can I successfully blame somebody else for it and pretend I'm an innocent victim? Nah. Can I forgive it? Yeah, every time. And sometimes you might have to do that 10 times in a minute before the mind finally shuts up. 
And then the only thing that's left is the created essence of life, which is what you are. And then actual human life begins. And breathing is part of human life. So the, the signal that whenever the breath stops is when I need to forgive is absolute. Mm-hmm. All right. Ten times a minute sometimes. And when I'm not so locked into my mind, when the stuff comes up and grabs me by the face and sucks me in, and I can step back and become the observer, the thinker apart from the thought, the feeler apart from the feelings, the actor apart from the actions, that I can see that, oh, this is just an energy pattern in my structure. Not true. Creates all kinds of hallucination, especially around my power person dynamic. And best how, how did that line go in, the, in the, the gambler the best you can hope for is to die in your sleep no, the best you can hope for is you can catch your mind at its game forgive as to its content and be freed of it so then that line becomes and the best you can hope for is to live eternally Ego's rule is die in your sleep. The true rule is best you can hope for is to live eternally. Full conscious awareness. But the trickster will come up with so many ways of sucking us back in. And so most people live in a world of make-believe. First they make it up, then they believe it, and then go out and produce the evidence to prove that it's true. When they could have had rachma and forgiveness instead. I uh, certainly acknowledge the rich content and understanding and wisdom behind the words. Um, uh, Two questions sort of arise for me in all of this, and one is, um, well, I don't know, a lot of things arise, but the impulse is just, just, the main impulse is just to be able to do as, but I, I, I am, I am kind of intrigued with. We sort of went down a path of power person dynamic, and then I talked about walking with my father, um, and his experience of denial, and thinking he was distressed because of the state of the world. It gives me a certain freedom and open in breath just to say that. I know mm-hmm. that just as I say that. Um, talking about him being in denial and his distress of the world, um, 
and, and and were we suggesting that 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 experience for me was power person dynamic sort of coming into me in some way that that was um, well remember the three things that it takes or, yeah remember the three things that install a power person dynamic in a child's mind one okay the power person is, is uh, has more power over you than you do. Two, right. they're not functioning as love, i.e. they're functioning out of fear. Three, you yeah. perceive it as survival. So if my God, Dad, is telling me about how the world is destroying us and it's such a danger to us, and as a four-year-old, five, ten-year-old, is my field going to be under stress? This is survival. And remember when one goes into that survival mode with a power person in in you know who's not functioning as love their field opens wide i mean literally thinking of this body as an energy field it's just like opens up and becomes like a sponge and sucks in everything in the environment which in this case would sound most likely would be dad's fear about the state of the world and what was going to happen and maybe you know i don't know him or what his temperament was maybe his anger about what was going to happen because of his projections but whatever that was Dougie was standing there field open going taking it all in in the future and just see if this is accurate having done that if that's true then the rest of your life is controlled, your behavior is controlled by three behaviors, depending what level of stress you're under. When there's no stress, you'll do what you did to get along with Dad. When stress starts to build, you'll shift out of that space, and you'll shift into doing what you did to resist and survive with Dad. And then, when you become ultra-stressed, you'll do what Dad did that you hated the most. And it sounds like you weren't very a very happy camper when Dad is railing about the state of the world and how destructive it is and is going to be. Well, and so under stress, what, I, what does your mind turn to? Oh, my distress is caused by something. See, it's the state of the world. It's what this one's doing. It's what that one's doing. It's what the no, no. It's what's moving in me, which is that energy that was sucked in from the power person. And what I need to do is presence that energy in front of active love, and the activity of active love will transmute or dissolve any kind of trauma energy associated with it. So I'm now freed of the past generations, and I have the mind of love to turn to for my advisor, which is exactly what I hear Tim was talking about, is I'm just in that mind where I know I'm safe, I know I'm covered no matter what, and... I'll know exactly what to say. Line in the chorus. He who sent me will direct me. I don't have to worry about what to say. I don't have to worry about what to do. 
because he who sent me will direct me. That's that's the passage that I hear ringing in my ears when I hear you describe what Tim was sharing earlier. But right, if, that would be, that would my, be <laughs> if my power person dynamic comes up, though, in response to the goal I'm holding with, oh, the state of the world, that's the problem, then I can avoid looking at me and what's inside of me altogether, and I can just keep focused out there, and, you know, I can be a prepper. And and, and that doesn't mean, I, you know, from love that I don't pay attention and go, there's some crazy stuff happening out there. I'm going to stay connected to love, and I'm going to do what I'm guided to do to take care of myself and my family. But I do that from a space of connected love, from a space of fear, because automatically, if I do it from a space of fear, the higher functioning, you know, one of the things you've done years of work with is higher brain learning. If the higher brain isn't engaged, which when we're in fear it can't be because it doesn't have any blood supply, we're going to try and try and try and try and try to figure it out, but we're trying to figure it out from a corrupt database and a corrupt past and, and generations of advisors and thoughts that have killed everybody in the bloodline up to date. What if I were to say, okay, so I don't know, it sounds crazy to live without perception, without memory, which when I was, you know, dealing with this myself, making the choice to go in that direction, it was like, but what, I mean, that's crazy. Well, no, it makes sense. Perception is just a reflection of everything in the past. And what is memory but the past? Am I going to be alive in the present and trust that there is a mind of love that is live and has been alive for eternity that will guide me? I can reject that mind and say, no, I don't believe it. I'm going to stay with this fear stuff and make sure I can be a proper and, and take care of myself. But then, you know, then I'll bring about the the, uh, the wonderful lesson that Job gave us after all that he went through, which is, if you read it, it's just a major healing crisis. And, and you hear Job in the last analysis says, oh, I got it. That which I feared most has come upon me. What was Job's big mistake? Go read that book. It's awesome. Job is a good and upright and righteous person. But right at the beginning, what does he talk about? He has a fear that his kids aren't going to be so upright. He loses it all. And then he goes, ah, I got it. That which I feared most, with fear as the amplifier, I set it up in my world. And once that was forgiven, everything was restored. So it's just, you know, I'm, I, at some point I have to make a choice as to which I'm going to trust. But the arguments of the ego are so subtle and so seductive and seem so true. And if it weren't for the fact that I'm a creator and am helping to create it, I should really be afraid of it. <laughs> it's another great line in the course is this. You think that the problem's outside of you. If the problem were outside of you, you would really be in trouble. But it's not. And that's a tough lesson to get when you live in a world. I mean, you and I, everybody that I know, by the time they were three or four, became a card-carrying member of the one-world religion of blame. 
Everybody I know. Everybody. You know, a lot of churchianity today, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of fear-based, oh, the one world religion of Satan is coming. No, it's not. It's here. It's been here from the beginning. It's a religion of lame. I mean, go back right to that, one of the first conversations Job had. Oh, God, that woman you gave me. Oh, so it was the woman's fault, and then it was God's fault for giving him the woman. That's where the one world satanic religion began. And Satan means the resistor, one who misleads, not the dude with the red suit, the tail, and the pitchfork. His greatest trick was to convince us he existed. And all it is is a resistance in our own minds, and our own minds misleading us because of our denial, dissociation, and projection. Remember when I think or speak as though something outside of me is the cause of what's moving inside of me? I have to dissociate from the real cause. And then, by dissociating, I add energy to it. I'm going to draw somebody in to resonate that. And then that which they've just resonated to me, which I'm in denial of, I'm going to use to build my brain's image of them. I'll project that content into my brain's image of them. And I'll have a really strong verification that it really is about them because, after all, I can see it. It's as plain as the nose on my face. I see it with my eyes. Well, actually, you've never seen anything with your eyes. You've only seen things with your brain. And your brain makes up the world you see. It's the resistor. I know we're into the final second. The resistor. It's the resistor. The resistor. Not accepting. One who not accepting. Okay. Resistor. And, and not one accepting who events misleads. neutral. Okay, that would be well, different. Well, all I, right. That, I think that would be one of the effects, but that wouldn't be part of the Aramaic definition. The Aramaic definition is pretty straightforward. The resistor, one who misleads. So I'm in a turmoil or a trauma again, and if I'm stuck in Satan, my mind's going to tell me that I'm in this again because of what Harry did or Mary did or Hortense did or the world did. So that's the, mis- or my- that's the mislead, the denial, the that's denial the mislead. and the blame. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, listen to anybody that you say, gee, you know, I've been watching and I've seen you go through this 87 different times with 42 different people, this, that's a, you know, this hostile mindset. Maybe it's about you. Do you ever think that? What is the average person going to say to that? No, 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 not me. Let me tell you about <laughs> Harry over there. <laughs> There's right. the resistor, resistance, and now i got a whole story to mislead me and mislead you about how it's about Harry. It's got nothing to do with me. Well, yeah, I have been through it 87 different times with 42 different people. It's got nothing to do with me. Yeah. All right, my friend. You have a blessed one. We're down to the last few seconds. This show's going to cut us off, but lots of love and blessings. Take care. Appreciate the conversation. Great questions. Blessings. Bye-bye.